What computer keyboard symbol was first discovered in the ruins of Pompeii and was once the 27th letter of our alphabet? <laughs> well, that's curious. Okay, simplify, Bob. Mm -hmm. What does it mean? And what is it short for? Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and have some fun with trivia. Well, Marcia, you see this symbol on your keyboard probably almost every day, and you use it at times. It was first discovered in the ruins of Pompeii, and it was once the 27th letter of our alphabet. What is it? I'm just going to guess. Is it the ampersand? That's exactly all right. right. All right. Yeah, that loopy symbol. Really? looks a bit like a leaning snowman. <laughs> That's been around for centuries. And according to the book, Shady Characters, The Secret Life of Punctuation, <laughs> Symbols, and Other Typographical Marks oh, brother. by uh, Keith Houston, the oldest known use of the ampersand is in graffiti that was found scrawled on a wall in Pompeii. Well, what did it mean there? Well, it actually was the cursive letters E and T that formed the word et in Latin, which means and. Oh, okay. It eventually became known as the ampersand, which leads to the name. According to Hannah Kaiser, writing on the website Mental Floss, by the 19th century, the ampersand symbol had become the 27th letter of the alphabet. It followed the letter Z. But that made it difficult to wrap up the alphabet when you're reciting it. Think how we do it. W, X, Y, and Z, right? So they were saying W, X, Y, Z, and, and. Yeah, that's... And that's why people began wrapping up the alphabet this way. W, X, Y, Z, and, per se, and. And then that phrase, and, per se, and... Oh, that became... Became ampersand. Oh, all right. Yeah, well, I had no idea. So that name first appeared in the dictionary in 1837. And today the symbol even has its very own day. There's a September 8th, this ampersand day. Did you know that? Everything <laughs> has a day, Bob. Toast <laughs> has its own day. So ampersand is, you know, the and sign. Uh -huh. All right. Well, the other day we were watching something on TV and... You know, we heard the expression Semper Fi. Yes, and, uh, the marine so, thing. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so what is it short for? Semper Fidelis or something like Very, that? Very. How did you know that? Well, you didn't know the other day what it stood for. No, I knew the name of it. I knew what it oh. was, but I don't know for sure. It's something like uh, loyalty forever or something like that? Darn close. It is Semper Fidelis, which is Latin for always faithful. There we go. And it's the motto of the U.S. Marine Corps. And you can answer to Semperfy with a ura, which is a common response or battle cry for a Marine. But don't be confused with hua, which is used <laughs> the U.S. Army, and a huya, which is the U.S. Navy and Coast Guard. All right. So cover all your bases and just yell ura, ua, and huya. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ura. <laughs> yes. All right, Marcia, you remember last week, uh, one of our questions had to do with uh, what was the modern convenience that was only introduced because AT&T was involved in a labor dispute. That was direct dial telephones, and they were introduced in Norfolk, Virginia in 1919. Uh-huh. 
the next year they introduced it in Dallas, Texas, and it kind of rolled out from there. Before then, everybody used operators. Okay. Well, I found a very fascinating little thing on the AT&T website. They have a 1936, well, I'd call it an explainer video. Uh That's what we call industrial videos that explain things. You know, I, I narrate a lot of those things. Well, this is an excerpt from an explainer video. They had to explain to people what a dial was, how to use a dial, what a dial tone sounded like. Well, let's hear it. Now, keep this in mind. This explainer film played in movie theaters in towns and cities where direct dial was being introduced starting in 1936. At midnight Saturday, the telephones in this city will be changed to dial service and all telephone numbers will be changed. Here are a few important suggestions for the use of your dial telephone. Before calling any number, first secure the number from your new directory. Then remove the receiver and listen for the dial tone. It sounds like this. That tone indicates everything is ready for your call. With the receiver off the hook, dial the desired number. For example, suppose you want to dial 23650. Dial each numeral in this manner, pulling the dial around to the finger stop each time. Be sure to allow the dial to freely return to its normal position. And this is the ringing signal. If the line is busy, you'll hear this busy signal. Until Saturday midnight, please use your present directory and make your calls in the usual manner. There there you go. Those are all basic things we've had for almost 90 years now. But they had to be explained at first. Yeah. Like, what does that do? Eh, eh, eh. What does that mean? <laughs> that means it's busy. Isn't that something? Yeah. So that was from AT&T from 1936, a film. Okay. All right. Well, I did go down a... a Rabbit hole? Yeah, with death. Okay. Oh, well, that's good. <laughs> Got a couple questions there. And I think before we discuss wakes... Yes. It's a common practice we know about, especially for the Irish, to celebrate a person's life of the recently deceased. Mm-hmm. But how did it get its name? Wake? Yeah. Get its, I think it was you were there to make sure the body didn't wake. That's it. It's kind of a watch for a wake. That's right. Watch and see if he wakes. It wakes up, yeah. Then That's we know a, we shouldn't bury him. <laughs> I know we discussed it before about the purpose of a wake. And uh, in the good old days, if you gave, you know, you gave a bit of time to make sure the deceased was dead, so you had a little party. And if he didn't wake up, drop him in the hole. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Marcia, you know, recently uh, Mardi Gras was celebrated in the city of... New Orleans? New Orleans, exactly. (laughs) But did you know that New Orleans wasn't the first city to host Mardi Gras in the United States? I did not know that. Where was it first celebrated? Was it in the South? Yes, it was in the South. And it was in another port city. Okay. Uh, Shreveport. No. Uh, Was it in Mississippi? No, it was in Alabama. Okay, then uh, I don't know. Mobile, Alabama in 1702. So the first Mardi Gras celebration in the U.S. was actually held at 27 Mile Bluff in Mobile. That went on for a number of years before New Orleans started celebrating Mardi Gras. Lots of food at the Mardi Gras, and I got a food question for you here, okay? Don't feel bad if you can't cook, okay? (laughs) I don't. (laughs) Because Julia Child didn't even learn to cook until after she became an adult. In fact, she learned it from her husband. Do you know the story there? I saw the movie. Yeah? But I don't remember. Well, Julia Child came from a wealthy family. She never had any reason to do any cooking because they had a hired cook in her family. 
And her real name was Julia McWilliams before she met Paul Cushing Child during World War II. They were both in China during the war. Julia started out as a file clerk. Paul was a map maker for the OSS. She was kind of a spy. They got married. They were assigned to China. Mr. Child introduced his wife to Chinese cuisine, and she loved it. And when Julia got the food bug, she became so interested in food that she studied at culinary arts in France. And that's how it all began. That's where you start. You just add a little wine. It just burns away. It burns away. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right. Let's get back to death, Bob. Oh, here we go again. (laughs) Do you ever wonder, Bob, why funeral processions move so slowly? Well, that's a good question. I always thought it was just a, uh, for the dead, kind of a respectful thing, a slow walk to yeah, the you, grave. Yeah, it you wouldn't know. seem right if they were skipping yeah, along. No, well, Mardi Gras, they do that. <laughs> Skip right. and dance there. So, No, that's uh, right, I thought maybe it had to do with if they used to carry the coffin, you couldn't run with it. You'd have to carry it on shoulders of people. Uh-huh. Is that it? Because it was so heavy? No, no. We go back to the good old Roman days again, Bob. Okay. They introduced the lighting of candles and torches at funeral services to ward off evil spirits. Makes sense. And help guide the deceased to paradise. This way, boys, you know. <laughs> the, word, the word funeral itself is derived from the Latin word torch. Well, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, but by the 15th century, people were placing huge candelabras on the coffins, even while they carried it to the burial ground. So people had to move like snails so the candles wouldn't blow out. Oh, <laughs> that makes sense. There were big candelabra, so everybody picked it up and walked very slowly. slowly. No kidding. Yeah. And we all drive slowly. for uh, During that, yeah. Funeral procession. If you've ever I, been behind one, you know how slow. I just thought it was a mark of respect for the deceased, <laughs> yeah. but it was because the candles would blow out. The candelabras, which is even more elaborate. Yeah, it's bizarre. Who would know that? No, you do now. I and do our, And I all do. the rampers out there. Okay. <laughs> all right. I've got an interesting question about archaeology. Okay? okay. What contribution did the Kodak company make to modern archaeology? Uh, some kind of scope that they can put underground to see what's there? It had to do with photography. Yeah. In 1911, this is years before he introduced a panoramic camera, Kodak's founder, George Eastman, gave American explorer Hiram Bingham a prototype. Now, Bingham was something of an Indiana Jones. He was a 35-year-old, a young Yale University professor who led archaeology expeditions. And he took that Kodak on an expedition to Peru. And while he was there, he was surprised to be led to the top of a mountain where they found an ancient lost city. And he spent four hours documenting the ruins on panoramic film. Uh, what was that city? Was it Machu Picchu? Machu Picchu, Ma- yeah. <laughs> and two years later, those stunning pictures revealed Machu Picchu to the world. In fact, Kodak provided cameras and film for multiple expeditions of his at no charge. And in exchange... He reported back on the ability of the film to be used and developed in in tropical regions. And for his return to Peru in 1912, listen to what he got. Three special Kodak cameras, 3,500 negatives, and at least 10 wooden tripods. And these documented the excavation of ruins, sometimes including Begum and his teammates to show the scale of how big the city was. And he said, if I hadn't had that, nobody would have believed me. That's what I found. So that's how Kodak made a major contribution to archaeology in the 20th century. They donated this new technology to help explorers document their discoveries. 
Okay, Bob, in 1991, Procter & Gamble won a $75,000 lawsuit against James and Linda Newton, who were found responsible for spreading rumors about P&G. What was the rumor? The rumor was that the P&G symbol, which was kind of like, I think, a face with stars in it, it's a circle, was satanic. That's right. They claimed that P and G were supporters of the Church of Satan <laughs> because they were distributors of Amway products. Oh, you're kidding. No, I didn't know that. So they did this to try they, to destroy the reputation yes. of a competitor. Yeah, they were the number one competitor of uh, Amway was Procter & Gamble. Oh, I didn't know that. That's a fun little after story. That is a fun little after story. <laughs> Not a fun thing for Procter & Gamble no, at the time. but they won. They won. Did it say how much money they won? $76,000. $75,000. 75000 So it wasn't huge, but it was enough to slap you on the hands. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot back in 91. Yeah. I, All right. Well, we'll take a break right now and be right back. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. Okay, we're back with the off-ramp. And, uh, Marsha, I've got a couple of word questions for you here. Okay, Okay. How did the Italian word for foundry become the word we use for slums? What is the word we use for slums? The word is ghetto. Okay. A ghetto, right? Yeah. In the ghetto. <laughs> and his mama cried. <laughs> I'm going to cry. Can I help you here? Can you get to that? Okay, okay. All right, so no, you Today can that get word me means impoverished urban centers. We apply it to okay. Oh, they live in a ghetto. Okay. Oh, that's a ghetto over there. But originally it related to places where Jews were forced yeah. to live, irrespective of their social class. It had nothing to do with whether you were poor or not. And in the early 1500s, Jews in Venice were housed on an island with an iron foundry. And the Italian word for foundry is ghetto, G-H-E-T-O. Oh, Get, that's how it... Ghetto with one T. Oh, I'll be darned. So that's how ghetto became associated with Jews, where they were forced to live. And then eventually, ghetto meant any place where people lived and they probably didn't want to be there. Wow. So that's, uh, that's how the Italian well, word it. for foundry became synonymous with slums today. So, you know, the etymology of things uh, is fascinating. Like, did you ever wonder, Bob, how mockingbirds got their name? Well, it must be the way they sound when they... Uh... Na, 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 na. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I assume it's the call and response or something when they're mocking someone. They're talking to each other. But they have a ability, and I didn't know that. I never really thought about that it. That they impersonate yes. people? Yes. They impersonate other birds, dozens of other birds. Really? Yeah, and it can mimic other sounds too, like creaking doors or cats. Oh, can you believe that? A bird that can mimic the sound of a cat. You know how you're always upset when those big birds come to our bird feeder. Yeah, the feeder? big black birds. Can you imagine a bird there that can mimic a cat? And yeah. Like, hey, let's get out of here. <laughs> uh, the mockingbird's Latin name is Mimis polyglotto, which means many-tongued. Mimic. Many, many different voice. sounds. Yeah. Well, speaking of Greek, <laughs> oh, I guess it's not Latin. <laughs> where, Autocorrect. Where does the word morphine come from? Morphine? morphine from Morpheus? Yes. What was Morpheus? He was uh, a god, wasn't he? A Greek god of dreams. Yeah. Yeah. So if you took morphine, often you'd fall asleep. So yeah. they named it after the Greek god of dreams. Yeah. I, I actually uh, got that one. Well, here's something. Okay. Popeye. <laughs> yes, Popeye. Okay, Popeye. Do you remember Donald Duck, Bob? Yes, I do. He had nephews. You remember their names? Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Good old Popeye had a family, too. I didn't know and that. And he had four nephews. 
Bob. Give me oh one. My goodness. Give me two. Popeye. Uh, Flopeye. <laughs> no? It's close. <laughs> Black eye and blue eye. I well, don't know. You're not that far off. Oh, really? Pip eye, peep eye, pup eye, and poop eye. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Little, little kids must have had a field day with those names. Poopie, I can't imagine. <laughs> Poopie. Oh, what a terrible thing. So I don't thing. know how often uh, Popeye's nephews were in the cartoons. Well, it will make sense. Or... You have to create a uh, family. The way they call them today, a universe around these characters. <laughs> you know, we talk but about nephews. That. What is it with uh, Donald Duck and Popeye? Everybody's got to have nephews. Well, apparently Popeye couldn't be a dad, so he had to yeah, have. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, they don't have sex or families. That's so right. They just Someone have... else had sex. In the family. In the family. That's right. All right, Marcia, we've been hearing of major corporations pivoting lately. In January of 2021, General Motors announced it would stop making gas-powered cars and trucks by the year 2035. Similarly, Royal Dutch Shell recently announced plans to pivot from fossil fuels to a cleaner business centered on selling electricity. Now, this isn't the first pivot in Shell's history. Do you know how Shell began the Shell Oil Company? No. (laughs) Anything to do with that logo? It's a shell. It's a shell. It's It's a a seashell. Yeah. And? Shell originally had a huge business in seashells, trading seashells early in its history. That really, that was part of its... Yeah. Beginnings. Amazingly. A man named Marcus Samuel in 1833, he had a London-based business selling antiques. He decided to try selling oriental seashells as well. He was capitalizing on their popularity in an interior design movement at the time. So he started importing seashells from the Orient to Europe. The demand was so great, he laid the foundations for an import-export business that would ultimately become one of the world's leading energy companies. After he died, his sons got into trading kerosene. So they were shipping kerosene all over the world. And then when they got into oil, they decided to name the company Shell. Shell. That is very cool. And what a... uh what a great logo to, yeah. to uh, pay tribute to their beginnings. It became the Shell Transport and Trading Company, and the first shell was a muscle shell. It changed to a scallop. That's what it is now. It's a scallop design. And to this day, they have more than 500 seashells in their archives from those early times. Very cool. Yeah. All right, Bob. How far does the average person walk in a lifetime, figuring that you live to 80? I'd say 5,000 miles. You walk in a lifetime. 110,000. Holy cow. Yep. That's over 216 million steps on your Fitbit if you're keeping track. <laughs> and that's the equivalent of walking around the earth five times from the equator. 110,000 miles. No wonder people's legs give out eventually. Oh, yeah. Sooner rather than 110,000 yeah. miles. And that's the average person. That's not a yeah. marathon no, runner. No, that's or... not someone that, you know, oh, I'm going to go for my five-mile daily walk. That makes sense. Now you can understand why athletes' legs, they have a lot of problems with knees oh, sure. and legs. Oh, sure, knees, legs, feet. Because they're, they're putting even more stress on yeah. those ligaments. Jeez. 216 million steps. That is amazing. Huh? All right. I have another question. I think we've covered this at one point before in a different way, but you've heard of flotsam and jetsam. Yeah. Water was filled with flotsam and jetsam. What does that mean? Isn't that uh, algae and stuff like that? These Uh, are actual legal terms in maritime law, flotsam and jetsam. Okay, tell me. Okay, jetsam is anything that's been deliberately jettisoned into the sea, like thrown into the sea. Really? Jetsam. So that's that's waste. Somebody's jetsam. 
Flotsam is considered floating wreckage. Think of floating. Yeah, flotsam. Yeah. It's something that's accidentally floating. Huh. So maybe a shipwreck yeah, or something. Yeah. That's flotsam. But jetsam is stuff you threw. It's like garbage. It's like I should have waste. known all that. Yes, you should have. Uh, really? You've heard it all your life. I just assumed it was stuff. You yeah, know. I thought it was algae and gook on the water. Yeah. What was the first novel, Bob, ever to be written on a typewriter? Oh, I think that was Mar- Mark Twain, wasn't it? Wasn't that Samuel yeah. Clemens? I thought it was The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, but maybe it was Tom Sawyer. It was Tom Sawyer. Really? You know, he loved technology, and he apparently walked by a window where they had a woman in the window typing. Yeah. And he saw that, and he thought, wow, that'd make writing a lot easier. When you think about it, all the books before that had been written in longhand. Oh, my God, that would take forever. And then you have to edit them and rewrite, actually literally rewrite. And (laughs) It's not correcting. It's rewrite. Yeah. That's why he said, I never let my schooling interfere with my education. (laughs) And uh, that's part of his education. He saw that and said, I'm going to teach myself how to do that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I have a question for you. Coming up, we've got the State of the Union. True or false? Since George Washington in 1790, every U.S. president has delivered an annual State of the Union speech to Congress. Uh, No. You're right. It's false because... The Constitution only requires the president to give Congress an annual report on the nation's condition. And George Washington delivered the first report as a speech in 1790, and John Adams continued that. But uh, there were a lot of presidents who didn't deliver the State of the Union. They just handed it to him? Yeah, they sent the paper over. Thomas Jefferson, who hated public speaking, he just delivered it. He sent it over in writing over to Capitol Hill. And for the next 113 years, every succeeding president followed Jefferson's example. Okay. Two presidents never gave a State of the Union report, period. Why? Well, one died. They both died. (laughs) (laughs) William Henry Harrison and James Garfield. They both died before they had a chance to deliver one. That's that's just... Harrison had the pneumonia in 1841. Yeah. Garfield was assassinated. Yeah. Well, it's okay. the fear of speaking in public killed him both. Well, yeah. <laughs> you associate that with the State of the Union message. Well, he died before he could give his, and he was killed before he could give his. I'm not going to give one. That's right. What president resumed the State of the Union as a speech? Who broke that record? Who came back and gave it as a speech again? Lincoln. No. 113 years, Marsh. Oh, Lincoln so, was only, yeah, you know, like yeah, 40 yeah. years, 50 yeah. years. That's hard to believe, isn't it? Only 40 years after. Je- Jefferson, right? Yeah. It was Woodrow Wilson in 1913. And ever since then, for the last 100 plus years, presidents have delivered a State of the Union address live and in person. Yeah. What city was known as the Valley of Death because it was so polluted? Oh, dear. Yeah. Can you give me any hint where... It's Brazil. Part... It's in Brazil. Oh, really? Wasn't yeah. Brazilia? No. Uh, Rio de Janeiro? No. Oh, what, what was Cubatus, it? Cubatus, C-U-B-A-T-O-S, Cubatus. In the 1990s, the city was so polluted that neither birds nor insects could survive there. And most, wow. Yeah, and most trees were blackened stumps. Even the mayor of this city refused to live there. It was so bad. <laughs> well, what caused it? Well, it's a combination of industrial pollution and its its terrain. It was uh, like a valley. 
Oh, with the with mountains. And, yeah, and probably had those inversion layers and things that exactly, caused exactly. caused the smoke to stay down in the valley. Wow. They've made great strides since the '90s cleaning up the pollution, according to the BBC. But they are still one of the worst polluted cities in the region. Wow. Okay, I've got a few more State of the Union questions here, Marcia. <laughs> okay. Okay. What new State of the Union tradition did Ronald Reagan introduce? With State of the Union? I don't know. He'd walk down from the back of no. the room? No, special guests who would be sitting in the gallery. Yeah, yeah, he, he was the, the first to do that. Oh, and he'd he? mention them in his speeches. Yeah, and then he'd point up and they'd take a bow. Yeah, it'd be something to do with what he was talking yeah, about. Yeah, it could that was be a, a soldier or a survivor. That was in 1982. And then... Uh, Speaking of survivors, you've heard the term, the designated survivor. That only began after September 11, 2001. It's now a tradition for a few members of Congress to relocate to undisclosed locations, as well as somebody selected by the White House Chief of Staff who would become president if everybody above him or her in the line of succession would die in a crisis. Yeah. I love the show, Designated Survivor, oh, yeah. with Kiefer Sutherland. Oh, yes. That, that was a good one, wasn't <laughs> you, it? Yeah. Who did the longest State of the Union speech? Oh, God. Who was? There were some loquacious ones, weren't there? <laughs> uh, Clinton? Bill Clinton. Uh, Hour and a half. Really? I mean, you know, this oh, isn't my. the 1800s. We have other things to do. All right. Let's go to Starfish. Okay. The, some of them can reproduce by spawning, pretty average way, but many can do it another way. You want to guess what that is? How they reproduce without spawning? They call in sex partners from somewhere else. <laughs> no! The starfish spawn. I never think of a starfish Spawning. even reproducing. Yeah, I know. You don't. How do you have sex well, when you've got well, all those sharp edges? It's well, <laughs> the, there many starfish, most of them, are asexual, which means one starfish can create another starfish without mating. A severed limb can become a whole new starfish. Oh, really? Okay. It just reproduces itself. Some species detach their own arms with the intention of reproducing. Wow. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go out here with some factoids all on death from the big book of answers. Oh, boy. You sure know how to end things sure. with a positive note there, Marsh. I got a vaccination now, so I'm feeling uh, I can... Invulnerable. I can, yeah. But th this is just interesting stuff. Real quickly. The most hazardous season is summer. The safest age of life is 10 years old. Really? The 10 most, years? Yeah. The most risky age is 45. Hmm. People over 75 are twice as likely to be in fatal accidents as the rest of us. Really? You are more likely to get attacked by a cow than a shark. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. You will sooner die if deprived of sleep than if deprived of food. Hmm. You can't kill yourself by holding your breath. And most people die of natural causes between... 4 and 5 a.m. Ooh, I didn't know that. And you know, I've always said that it's nothing natural about it. They're probably having a nightmare about being slaughtered and <laughs> have a heart attack. But. <laughs> well, thanks for those great facts on death, Marcia. You sure know how to wrap things up oh, today. Oh, well, it's still a fun day. It's a beautiful day. We'll try to be more positive next oh, time. Oh, we're positive. Here's a thing we can end on a positive note. Okay. Invite people to send us questions and Oh, answers. sure. S send me good ones to trick Bob with. What? No, that's uh, not the way to describe it. Just go to the website at... Theofframp.show and go to contact us. And uh, just put in your question and answer there. Tell us your name and where you're from. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. And this wait, 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 a, wait minute. a minute. No, 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 no. No. But uh, this is the, the off, off ramp. ramp. Yeah. <laughs>
We'll get that right next time. Say goodbye, Bob. Okay, bye. <laughs> goodbye, Bob. Goodbye, Marsha. Hello. I'm no, all alone here. Nobody's home, Bob. <laughs> Anywhere. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarburg Public Library, Cedarburg, Wisconsin.